0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very good morning to Bill Bishop in Washington, D.C. Bill, for those of you who are new to our show uh, or new to the China space, uh may not be familiar with him, but anybody who's been studying China or Sinology over the past 10 to 15 years will know exactly who Bill Bishop is. Uh, we are thrilled to have him today. Bill is the man behind the incomparable Sinicism China newsletter. Uh, really, this is must-read reading for anybody who wants to follow uh, news and events and trends about China. It comes out almost every week. Uh, It's really incredibly reliable over the years, and we know from our own experience of putting out a newsletter it's not easy, but this newsletter is just thick. (laughs) It is uh, where he basically goes through foreign policy, defense, economics, you know, all these different sources, both in Chinese and in English. He's also a fluent Chinese speaker who lived in China for 10 years, from 2005 all the way through to this year when he moved to Washington, D.C., no doubt, to finally get a well-earned break from Beijing's polluted skies. I'm sure you're breathing a little bit easier now, Bill, and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. You're great for having me, and uh, uh, you flatter me, and uh, that will work. So thank you. <laughs> Flattery um, gets you everywhere. It's, it's, it's great to be back in D.C., and uh, it's a little boring here, uh, but our kids especially are quite ecstatic.
0: So they're ecstatic because they can see the sky, and it doesn't take them three hours to drive anywhere, and um, people are probably a little bit less sharp with the tongue, is, my, my, is what I imagine. Uh, in the
1: yeah, then they can play outside, and uh, generally don't have to check the – the apps to see whether or not there are masks to school
0: that day. That's right. So that—do you have? Have you hung up your masks on the wall as kind of a memory of Beijing?
1: I think I burned them. No, uh, a couple of them we lost. <laughs> a couple. One of them I still have, but I didn't want to think about it.
0: Well, the the reason why we invited Bill on the show is because we're going to start 2016. Uh, and really kind of do a new a new push, because we've been getting a, a lot of requests from our listeners to do more about China. And so we're going to take a little bit of a break from China in Africa and focus mostly on China today. And the reason why we're doing that is a lot of students and, uh, and a lot of email from listeners have asked us to better contextualize Africa in the broader China global engagement strategy and, you know, un- better understand Xi Jinping's view of the world. So that's why we reached out to Bill. And so Bill let's just kind of step back. You have been an observer of Xi Jinping since from the beginning and obviously you were following, you know, the previous administrations Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao and, and the like. And but she has taken the country in a radically different direction, particularly in terms of foreign policy. So for a lot of Africans, China looms very very large. But for a lot of Chinese, Africa doesn't loom large at all. So when you look at how the Chinese see the world, Where are they looking? Is it still a, are they still focusing mostly on the relationship with the US? Here in Southeast Asia where I'm located seems to be a major center of their foreign policy agenda. Tell us a little bit about where China is devoting its attention in the world today.
1: Well, I think um, China is devoting its attention to much uh, sort of all over the world in a way. And in some ways, I think to, to the saying that sort of things dramatically change under Xi Jinping, which I know is, is a very common view, I think in some ways actually misses um, some of the continuity and some of the – where she is, I think, in uh, uh, many ways, he's, he's a much more robust and muscular uh, leader. But a lot of what they're doing in, in not just in foreign policy but in several areas are actually really um, – Continue uh, ex- extensions or just a consistent path from uh, policy or, or strategic goals they laid down years ago under the under the huge Town administration or before in foreign policy for example one of things we're seeing certainly we're seeing a, a big focus on China on their near neighbors they even had in 2013 a um, uh, a, a very rare a work conference on um, sort of periphery diplomacy I forget the exact name in English where they was focused on how they would prosecute their foreign policy work in the near the near periphery to China um, one of the big issues we hear about a lot are, is specifically around this sort of the neighborhood around China is maritime issues South China Sea you know well, Hu Jintao gave his work report um, at the at the close of the sort of the the, the the general secretary handing over power gives the gives a work report at the at the party Congress for that brings in the new leadership so the um, I think it was the it first plenum of the eighteen party congress, Jintao gives his uh or maybe it was the last cleanum of the seventy party Congress, Hu gives his work report. Um and then he talks about China as building this maritime power, right? Which then is what you're seeing of course is, you know, with the development of the PLA Navy, with what they've been doing in the East China Sea, the South China Sea, um the anti piracy operations that are over in off of Africa, um ships going through the Indian Ocean. You're so you're seeing I think what we're what we're seeing under Xi is again a more muscular and robust leader. But in many ways, he's he's sort of um, harvesting some of the fruits of policies they've laid out many years ago. So I think where you're seeing shifts, though, is one. It looks clear that while the U. S. is still a very important relationship for China, uh, Xi at least publicly does not appear to be making sort of the number one relationship as, as it appeared to have been under his predecessors, and he's put obviously put more focus on BRICS, uh, more focused on having a, some kind of relationship with Russia and with Putin, although I think that's um, very fraught, and I think the Chinese actually understand it's a very fraught relationship, but it's got useful um, tactical and propaganda value potentially. Um, and then when you look at uh, Africa, of course, I mean the, the Chinese are more and more engaged in Africa. And one of the things that's also happening too, though, I think is, is, and I don't know how you measure it, but when you look at sort of the role of of Chinese people in the views on foreign affairs and foreign policy, you know, this just in the last five years, really, you've seen this incredible explosion of Chinese people going overseas and traveling, traveling all over the world. I mean, I used to joke with my Chinese friends that. This is a you know, you, you guys, you Chinese are, you know, you're you're the best travelers in the world because I'm an American and there are a whole bunch of countries around the world. I wouldn't dare to go because it's, because it's dangerous for me. But basically if you're Chinese, there's almost, almost no country that doesn't welcome you now because one, your government's throwing around a lot of money two You guys have a lot of money to spend and three, you haven't started, you know, you're not involved in wars in most of these places. And so I think though, you're seeing, you are seeing an increasing awareness of overseas issues, um, among the Chinese populace. Now, whether or not that actually feeds back into sort of the overall kind of, you know, government party views on how they do foreign policy, I, I don't know. But it, it's, a, it's a time, I think, where these last few years, where in many ways, China has become the most, becoming the most engaged, both at a personal level, as, as well as at a government level, in global affairs than maybe they ever have in, certainly in recent history.
2: And against this background um, of these shifts in foreign policy how do you think we should we should look at the one belt one road um, initiative you know kind of from the outside it's frequently seen as it's new it's radical it's you know kind of unprecedented but you know kind of how new is it and how much detail do we have about it and how important do you think it's going to be over the next few decades so I think it's it's it's
1: the newness in many ways is that it's been newly packaged into
2: um, a,
1: a sort of a, a somewhat coherent presentation of what it is, but in fact, it represents um, the reality of a whole bunch of different initiatives that they've been going on for years. You know China' has been investing in building infrastructure um, in these areas for for a long time, but they've been more of a sort of one-off projects. And now I think they're trying to you know they' have and again, I think this ties back a bit to that that foreign policy work conference at the end of two thousand and thirteen I mentioned because it had to do with how do they better prosecute foreign affairs with uh, foreign relations with their with their neighbors and you know the the OBAR OBOR whatever the OBOR acronym um, certainly plays into that because part of it is you know while these a lot of these projects were happening certainly not all of them and there wasn't these the headline commitments of so much money you know it in many ways this 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 is I think there you know there are multiple um, rationales for the Chinese side some of their economic ones, where they can push off some of their overcapacity, um, push off some of their, um, you know, certainly a lot of the infrastructure contracts, the construction contracts will go to Chinese companies. But in many ways, it's, I mean, it's, a, I think it's a very smart strategy. Not looking at the economic value, but in many, but but it should, if it's done correctly, it should uh, continue to increasingly bind the neighbors economically to China, which. Ultimately, um, you know, there's, a, there's this idea, there's this guy, Evan Feigenbaum, who was in the Bush administration. He's now at a think tank in uh, uh, he's the Paulson in Chicago. And he wrote an essay in Foreign Affairs and Foreign Policy a few years ago, where he talked about the two Asias. One is security Asia and one is economic Asia. And security Asia is where the U.S. is, is still in ascendance and countries want and the region want the U.S. to be there to help sort of hedge and balance against China. But economic Asia really is all about the increasing, um, each of these, the countries in the region increasing, seeing their economies increasingly bound to the fate of China. And so I think Obor um, plays into that very well. And they've taken uh, bits and pieces of things that are already happening and and packed them up into a much more coherent strategy. Now, whether or not it ultimately works, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense. The detail, the devil, of course, in the details. But if you look at, for example, the the stands around China. You look at you know Laos or Myanmar or Cambodia, uh, Vietnam. I mean Vietnam maybe is a little bit different because of that historical relationship. But all these countries are desperate. Pakistan, Afghanistan, they desperately need infrastructure. And the U.S., for example, we don't do we don't build a infrastructure, right? Um, and so there there isn't a, uh, a better alternative for. These countries to have the infrastructure improved for the Chinese it makes sense because if they can build better infrastructure it means they can ship more you know increased trade and again buying these countries closer to them economically so I actually think it's a very smart policy I think it's got a lot of problems I think it's overhyped but what you're seeing is you're seeing now because it's become this strategy there's a lot more policy support there, there's a lot more talk well we need think tanks the Chinese are saying we need think tanks to support this you know you you, you talk to SOEs and officials, and they seem to always have a, a, a something in their their stump speech about one belt, one road. And um, so, you know, I think I think it's one of the things where will it live up to its hype? Probably not. Will it still be a pretty important and impactful uh, strategy?
0: Probably. So, for those of you, our listeners who aren't familiar with one belt run road, this is what's being called as the maritime Silk Road, and it's basically a global loop you know that takes that goes down throughout Asia around the tip of India all the way across the Indian Ocean up past into Kenya and in the port of Mombasa up north from the port of Mombasa through the Suez Canal and into the Gulf and whatnot from there. so what's interesting at that point is to um is to look at what, how One Belt, One Road, if it can live up to, again, the hype. And let's kind of, speaking of hype, bring um, bring in Ian Bremmer here. Ian Bremmer is the president of the Eurasia Group, which is a consulting and strategy uh, group. He says, and he compares the Chinese kind of view of the world to the American view of the world. And he says, well, One Belt, One Road defines a global strategy for the Chinese. So, for example, in Africa, they're building infrastructure that will feed into One Belt, One Road. One could make an argument that the Djibouti logistics hub uh, is part of One Belt, One Road. It all fits together as part of a cohesive strategy. Whereas the Americans and how they're engaging the world is really... We used to have a strategy to promote democracy. Uh, and to promote freedom around the world. That seems to have gone away. There isn't this filter with which every American policy passes through as it did during the Cold War, much like what Bremer says is happening with the Chinese in one belt, one road. What's your take on that? And how do you kind of interpret, you know, Bremer's comments in that sense?
1: I mean, I think, I think that um, we have to be careful about Falling into the trap of sort of saying, "Oh, you know, there are 15 guys in Beijing who come up with these grand strategies." I think that again, um, parts of this were happening anyway because of the way the Chinese companies were more aggressively uh, going overseas for for business. Um, and then I think I think they realized that, that, that the Chinese leadership the, the realized that they already had pieces here and they want they needed to package it up into something sort of you know this part of the way the Chinese system works, right? They they a lot of times, when you see this grand strategy, it's actually pieces are already happening. But then they decide, and they realize it's it's much better, and it's much better for getting it to work inside the Chinese bureaucracy, the Chinese system. If we can, we can sort of wrap it up into this nice big grand strategy. Um, that said, I don't, you know, I'm not aware of an of a one belt one road office that sort of approves everything or is sort of sending out uh, orders to. Um, all the different companies about this is what you need to do here. I think ultimately there's just they're trying to set up a framework um, with some very specific design policies that will will let them overall spread spread out through this this network they're building and they very much and I think they're correct they very much believe that over time the again the, the binding these countries more closely to China economically will reap all sorts of other security benefits and so you know, we'll see. I mean, you, you know, you look at you look at what's going on in 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 ASEAN and the ASEAN region and the concerns that China has has created over what's what's you know the what's going on in the South China Sea, um, and and one of the questions, right, is can the can the increased economic ties outweigh the increased security concerns and these actions? And so, if this were just a now, maybe the Chinese have calculated that. Money talks, and so they can push on the security side. But as long as they're as long as they're continuing to find ways to tie the tie the, the regional economies closer, the, the the neighboring economies closer to China, they can increase their space for more assertiveness on the security and territorial side. Um, but overall, I think there's um, – I would be careful about assuming that there's perfect coordination coming out of Beijing for everything they're doing that is being sort of put under the the rubric of One Belt, One Road. But clearly from an overall concept, it's a, it's a very interesting, uh, very, very interesting, very high-level concept that kind of like the China dream that she's, been, that she's articulated for um, his vision of China, you can kind of put a whole bunch of things into Obor that – um, ultimately, I think the net, the, the on a net basis, is going to be very positive to China.
2: Picking up on the on the theme of security, um, you know, from an African perspective, it it seems that China has this almost schizophrenic. Nature and you know kind of security nature like on the you know one one reads a lot about about tense moments in the South China Sea and you know um, China seems like quite an aggressive neighbor in, in its close neighborhood and then in Africa it essentially works completely under the UN you know kind of it's only engages in peacekeeping and it keeps a relatively low profile security wise how how do you see Chinese security expanding or, you know kind of developing or in in outside its close neighborhood in over the next decade
1: or two well I think I think China is you know they 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 mean it when they say that they're they don't want to become a global hegemon right now I mean right now Um, I think the focus is clearly on becoming number one in Asia and I think they are smart enough to understand I mean frankly they don't have the capabilities to take on I think much more significant roles in Africa or regions, other regions that are quite far from China right now. They just don't have the power projection capability. Uh, They don't have the experience. And frankly, even if they did, considering the messes the U.S. seems to have gotten into, why would they want to? So I think the focus um, it's still on on the areas around China was sort of the main focus. But of course, in Africa, they have lots of interest, and you know, I think they're the largest. Um, contributed to forces for the UN Peacekeeping Forces, yep, I think. That's right. Um, and they have been, have been for a long time, and they don't get a lot of credit for that. And they actually they get quite upset because it never gets really talked about. Um, but right now, and, and, and for them, you know, again, that's one of the things we, we people talk about is, okay, well, we'll with O-Board, as their interests and in their commercial interests increase in these countries that are further and further away from China, how do they then um, what do they need to do to then sort of protect their interests and protect their citizens? And we've seen a couple instances, I think maybe Libya was the first time where they actually had to send um, ships to evacuate Chinese citizens. Um, there are reports, right, that they're, they're actually have leased a military base in Djibouti. Um, so I think, you know, you're seeing this natural progression that um, ultimately will they, will they end up with the kind of the set of, bases and and interests and power protection capability that the U.S. has or the Soviet Union had at its peak, maybe, but I'm not sure they want that. And even if they do, it's, I think, still many, many years away.
0: Let me shift gears a little bit and, and move to kind of public opinion and, and public perception. You know, I, as an American, I, I, I kind of chuckle every time I see more and more similarities between the Chinese and the Americans in their societies. And there's a lot of parallels that can be drawn now. And this is a point that Kaiser Guo makes on the Seneca podcast as well. But one of the, 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 pair, the commonalities between the two is how Americans see themselves in the world is sharply divergent and increasingly divergent from how others see them. America still sees itself and you hear this in the republican debates that are going on as the as the shining city on the hill as the leader of the free world and if you sit in Stockholm or Paris or London they're, they're scoffing at it they look at it as the gun capital the uninsured capital the you know l- infant mortality capital of the developed world and there's these huge valleys between how we as Americans see ourselves and how the rest of the world And I find that in China, there's a very similar gap, you know, gap, but in very different ways. Many Chinese people, you know, still see themselves as a kind of poor third world, you know, developing country that is the victim of foreign imperial powers. And there's a real kind of insecurity. And also because of the warped views that many Chinese news consumers get through their censored media, there is oftentimes this highly distorted view of the world that comes through. And so a lot of Chinese are very unfamiliar with what their own government is doing in places like Latin America, South Asia, the South China Sea, and don't really have an understanding of how other people perceive them. On the outside, one of the things we talk about in our podcast quite a bit is how more and more in Africa, people don't make a a difference between, say, Europe and China. They look at China as a first world superpower now. And so, you know, this gap between the, how the two see themselves. And and it came up a couple weeks ago on my Weibo account. I posted, I asked a question to my followers. I said, what do you think of Xi Jinping's $60 billion pledge at FOCAC? And the outrage that I got. I mean, people are pissed. And they were just like, <laughs> we have so many poor people. Yeah, why, in China. Wait, why, why, aren't
1: we, why aren't we spending this money on, you know, Supporting the poor people in China there or, we you know, go. getting more people out of poverty. Right? And
0: that sounds like, believe it or not, that sounds very much like what a lot of Americans say about foreign aid. We shouldn't be helping other people. We've got poor people at home. So, you know, these are I'd love to get your insights about from your time in China and, and, and your view of how the Chinese see the world, not the government, not the diplomats. But the guy on the street and I know that there is not a single profile that we can talk to because the guy on the street in Beijing is very different than the guy on the street in Hebei or in you know Guangxi but still this yes. how do they see themselves so that people who are you know who are in Africa can have a more kind of textured view of what the Chinese people think of the world I mean
1: that's a that's a that's a tough one because it's it's so hard to sort of generalized. It's absolutely what people think. I mean, my, 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 my sort of narrow slice of, of China and, and narrow slice of Beijing, I think there's, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of very deserved pride at how China has progressed. I mean, I'm, I'm older, I'm 47. Most of my friends are about the same age. So they, actually remember, um, you know, they were born somewhere, you know, early on in the cultural revolution. They remember when China was poor, um, and when they couldn't travel anywhere and when, you know, it was really hard to get a visa to go anywhere if you could afford the plane ticket. Um, and so there's, there's a, there's a lot of pride in how things have changed so quickly in their lifetimes, both in terms of their own ability to travel abroad, but also how they're treated. And now, you know, even, even five years ago, it was different. Now, most places they go, the, the, the people assume the Chinese are the ones with the most money when they're traveling. Um, in terms of, um, and it, it really is amazing how quickly that has changed. In terms of sort of what they think of their government, you know, <laughs> there's clearly a lot of uh, nationalism, as in any country, with especially a country with China's history, and and um, you know, and a lot of it again is justified. There's uh, there, there's clearly, um, and Xi Jinping, I think, has, has especially been able to appeal to this, um, and is and this idea that you know China is this, this Chinese exceptionalism, China is um different than the other countries in Asia, for example, we are Lada. you know we are the we are the big power in Asia and we need to be treated as such. Um, so some of that I think is you know the idea that they're spending money overseas or or you know committing money to Africa, committing money in Obor is, is I think seen as something to be proud of and a, a national progression. But the issue more is isn't so much about, you know, the foreign policy, it's about, but our country's still got a lot of problems. Why can't we breathe the air in Beijing? Why is traffic so bad? Why is, you know, why is there so much pollution? Why are there kids who can't go to school? And so it's this, it is its this it, it is this sense that you're talking about, I think, where, where overall, you know, and, 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 you know, depending on who you talk to, there's these sort of more cynical, of course, OBOR is going to be a great way for a lot of people to steal a lot of money. Um, which you know may or may not be true. Certainly would have been true under g how. We'll see about it under GDP. So overall, I don't think I'm giving you a very good answer to your question because I'm just not sure how to. I don't think I certainly don't have the knowledge to sort of give you an exact answer of the sort of the generalization. I think it, it's a complex answer. I think like you like you said the example of the U.S. The same kind of thing where there are certainly people who are going to complain about some of this overseas support, but there are also people who, you know, I'm an American. Some of our foreign aid is potentially problematic, but at the same time, we have a responsibility to support other countries, but also clearly the foreign aid in many cases is done in support of U.S. interests, and that's sort of how the game is played.
2: I wonder if we can, you know, kind of if you can unpack the the, the differences and similarities between Chinese exceptionalism and American exceptionalism in, in this case. It seems to me that there's a, you know, kind of a, a slight difference in the sense that you know, kind of both of them have a, a certain kind of logic that, the you know, kind of if people just do what we did, you know, kind of if, you just, if they just work as hard as we did, if they just, you know, kind of institute. Systems as, as efficiently and as kind of innovatively as we did, then then you know kind of they'd be able to to also they'd be able to follow us on our development path. That's what that's one one kind of like crude you know kind of boiling down of one kind of exception. And five thousand so years of history new, we, is the other one. Exactly, we're like we we're, a, we're yeah. an example for the world, and I think the Americans and the Chinese to a certain extent share that view, even though their systems are different. But the Chinese then have the second one of like we're a thousand year old civilization, you know, kind of with this incredibly sophisticated language, and no one is like us. Um, you know, kind of there's no, there's no yeah. way to replicate this model, well, and yet there's every way to replicate this model. Like, how, how do you see the well, differences between those?
1: Well, I think, I mean, you, you guys, you, you, I think was Eric, we touched on earlier, maybe, or maybe sort of this idea of, you know, or no, I'm sorry, it was you, about sort of Americans, we see ourselves as they're sitting on the hill, and yet a lot of countries don't see that anymore. I mean, China... You know, as, as Americans, I think, generally have this idea that, of course, everyone wants to be like America, right? It's a very deeply ingrained kind of arrogance that, you know, hey, we have the best system, and so people should want to have this democracy, American values, you know, <laughs> et cetera. I don't think the Chinese government expects other countries in the world to adopt the Chinese sort of Marxist-Leninist market-type right, system that they have. It's It's more about we're Chinese and we have this great culture and we have the biggest country in the world and we may soon have the biggest economy in the world and so therefore you need to uh, not necessarily be like us but you need to respect us. I mean so much of this is, you've got to remember, is about respect because China for a very long time has not been respected and it's only really in the last decade or so where I think you're seeing significantly about significantly more respect going to China And, and so much of what, you know, Mao did so much of what they did after the fall of the Qing. This, this idea of China, China, the the great renaissance of China is all about rebuilding respect for China and, you know, re, re, regaining China's rightful place in the world. Um, so that is, it's very different from I think, the American view of exceptionalism. But at the same time, you both, and this is, I think, this is again, is one of the, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I think you're seeing increasing amounts of friction in the U.S. China relationship is because ultimately, Um, you know, and then specifically one of the, one of the main friction points is Asia and, you know, currently the South China Sea, because in in many ways that's a, it's a much broader clash about who's number one in Asia and China returning to its rightful place in the world means China is the head, is the main hegemon in Asia, which means that the South China Sea, there is no room for the global hegemon, which is the United States of America. Um, and, and both of those, I think in some ways embody this. This kind of clash of American and Chinese exceptionalism, but again, I don't think you find any Chinese who really think that there are other countries around the world who all want to become take on Chinese the Chinese system. Whereas, obviously, when you look at the U.S. and U.S. foreign policy, the underlying assumption is everyone's just yearning to be free and they all want to be like America. Yeah,
0: I'd like to end our discussion today uh, on economics, in part because, as you've talked about, that in many ways is the kind of the the forward. Kind of deployment of, of Chinese foreign policy, particularly in places like Africa. So, in, in Africa, you know, everybody is kind of concerned about the state of the Chinese economy, and there's been a lot of alarm about the gyrations in the stock exchanges. But more recently now, uh, particularly with the increase in the Fed in the US interest rates by the Fed that came in December, there's been a devaluation of the currency, and that is what petrifies a lot of developing markets. Uh, You know, here in Vietnam, it's been a concern because a cheaper currency means that Chinese exports become that much more valuable. And already throughout Africa, uh, producers and manufacturers are wilting under, you know, competing against the China price. And so combine the questions of the, the, you know, the stability of the Yuan mixed with, you know, the stability of the Chinese economy, And, you know, people around the world, but particularly in Africa, are wary, you know, will the Chinese stay engaged if their if their economy implodes. And so I guess the question is looking ahead to 2016 in the kind of Bill Bishop, you know, magic eight ball. um, What are you seeing in terms of the of the stability and health? And what's your kind of forecast for the economy? (laughs) Ah, that, 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 <laughs> That's that, the sixty four million dollar question. should be easy,
1: yeah, easy, <laughs> easy question. Well, I mean I, I, I tend to be um, uh, I don't know, I, I tend to avoid sort of the hysteria on both sides of the of the kind of the spectrum when it comes to the Chinese economy. I think it's a mess. I think it's going to be a big grind. It has been a mess for many years and it's been a grind for many years. And I mean, they clearly have a whole bunch of very serious challenges um, that they're dealing with. I, I don't, I don't see it as sort of, okay, it's about the collapse. I do think though, to your point about the currency, it's very interesting because there, there is an attraction and there, there, there is, there is logic to a more significant devaluation to make their exports more competitive among within certain sectors of the economy. The reality though, is, um, politically, there may be some wins domestically, but actually even a 15, 20% devaluation, well, would help, parts of the, you know, sectors that are heavily reliant on exports, it wouldn't necessarily move the needle for the whole economy, and it certainly wouldn't help China achieve what it stated as one of its key tasks, which is rebalancing the economy away from things like exports. And so it would be a short-term fill-up that actually would probably cause a lot of damage to the economy domestically, in addition you know, we talked earlier about, okay, this, is, this this is this this grand strategy or is this something they've kind of backed into and now they're packaging it up nicely? You know, the, the Chinese, if you look at it, you know, they're very proud of how they behaved during the 1997 Asian financial crisis where they held the line and didn't, didn't participate in kind of beggar their neighbor, currency devaluations. They got a lot of credit for that. You know, China now has with its with its much more expansive foreign policy that includes OBOR, some of the other stuff we talked about. If they were if they are then now to engage in a in a competitive devaluation, sort of to just go full on mercantilism and start a current and and, and and actually engage in what is already a currency more among other countries, China has actually been fairly quite restrained and in in, in, in in fact over the last year. Then I think they would they would do a lot of damage to their over to their broader set of foreign policy goals that they seem to have articulated. So I would, you know, I think you're going to see a kind of, you know, their MB is now um, down, I don't know, four or something percent uh, since August, although it's still up pretty significantly against the dollar um, uh, in the last year, I believe it's, it's a, it's a, it's a very, um, but I don't think – I would be surprised if you see a massive devaluation of the Chinese to, to sort of summarize my long-winded answer because you um, – because it conflicts with several of their other goals, and it, like, both external and domestic. Um, that said, you know, they – again, if if they're seen as not helping exporters at all because they're worried about their relationships in Africa or Latin America or Asia – You know, then there are pretty significant concerns, potentially pretty significant pressures domestically. So it's a very, very tight balance for the Chinese. Um, I will guess that they're going to keep for the more conservative, responsible approach. Where you'll see the UN. I don't think you'll see the UN crack seven to the dollar um, in 2016, but you might see it closer to like 6.7, 6.8, and that even that will put some pressure on. you know manufacturers in other countries, but um, it shouldn't be crippling if it were say the Chinese were to go to seven you know there there's been talk that, that there are people in Beijing who are arguing for fifteen twenty percent devaluation, and and one of the things i've heard is that there are people who are saying you know we we this idea that we need to be responsible and this helps us on the foreign policy side if we hold the line on the B you know we did that in 97 and we didn't get that as much credit we should have and we got to focus internally and we got to focus on the economy i think those folks are going to lose out um, but you know clearly there are people serious people i know who are saying that that it has been on the table for a much bigger devaluation
0: yeah um, i can i
1: mean i so think the answer uh, there, like like any economist on the one hand on the other hand <laughs> my, right. but but again my, my 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 guess my guess is that the chinese will um, will keep it under seven to the dollar and they changed the way they, they, the basket. And so it's a little, it's not quite apples, potentially not quite apples to apples anymore, but ultimately I think they're going to resist uh, some of the internal pressures for a more dramatic devaluation because one, it doesn't necessarily help the economy that much. And two, it will do a lot of damage to their foreign
0: policy goals. It certainly would. I mean, I can see it here in Vietnam and in other countries. People are very afraid of a big devaluation, in, in Africa in particular. Hey, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Bill Bishop is the man behind the Sinocism China newsletter. Bill, if people who are new to the, the Sinocism newsletter want to sign up for it, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Uh, just go to the website uh, sinocism.com, dot com s i n o c i s m dot com and it give me an email and it's free and it um, comes out usually comes out uh, any anywhere between two and four times a week is the general publication schedule now.
0: And you are prolific. Oh, thank and, you. Yeah, and you are prolific on Twitter. In fact, you you have received a whole bunch of foreign policy magazine kudos uh, for your your, <laughs> your Twitter. Uh, you're you're among the Twitterati from from what I understand. What's uh, if people want yeah. to follow on you on Twitter? What's the best way to do that?
1: Uh, my Twitter handle is Yubi. Um, it's little so cheek uh, for those who know what it is. If you don't, sorry, I can't mention it on the podcast. but, uh,
0: uh, <laughs> It's a family it's, podcast.
1: N I U B I is my Twitter handle. Excellent. Bill no Bishop was
0: taken. Cobus, uh, uh, people want to follow you on Twitter. What's the best way for them to stay in touch with what you're reading and writing
2: these days? On Twitter, I'm at Stadnesque, that's S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-U-E, And you'll also see me on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And
0: we're doing a 24-hour feed of the top China Africa news on Facebook. Uh, every four or five hours, Cobus is doing it from Africa. I'm doing it from over here in Asia. So it's a great way to kind of stay on top of the headlines. If that's a little bit too much for you, uh, we also put out a newsletter. Nowhere near as comprehensive as Bill's. But uh, nonetheless, a newsletter goes out every Monday with four or five of the top China Africa stories. So we do a little bit of curation there for you, and we also pick a deep dive read uh, from a think tank or a scholar of some kind, so you can do some put that away for the weekend reading on uh, again on China-Africa relations of some kind or another. You can find that over on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. There's sign-up bars all over the place, and of course, if you want to follow this podcast, just head over to iTunes. Type in China Africa or on SoundCloud the same way and you'll find us right there. And finally, we want to put a little shout out to the folks at the Asia Society and their China File website who also carry this show every week and we're thrilled to be a partners of theirs. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.